Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. As the war in Ukraine passes the one-year mark, this is undoubtedly the most pressing foreign policy challenge for the United States. But it's far from the only one, according to my guest today. James Lindsay says we have entered a new era of great power rivalry. And unlike the Cold War, this rivalry involves a number of players, obviously the U.S., China, and Russia, but also emerging powers like India and Brazil, as well as regional powers. Recently, Dr. Lindsay published a series of five major foreign policy challenges for the U.S. in 2023. We'll discuss those as well today. James Lindsay is a senior vice president and director of studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. There he oversees the work of over six dozen fellows and 11 fellowship programs. For over 30 years, he has served in various institutions of American foreign policy, from the National Security Council staff to the Hart-Rudman Commission, the Brookings Institution, and the Strauss Center, to name just a few. He's also the author of several books. His most recent, co-authored with Evo Dalder, is The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership. He also contributes articles to Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. He's also the author of the blog, The Water's Edge, which discusses the politics of American foreign policy. He was a guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations earlier this week, and I spoke with him while he was in Tulsa. James Lindsay, welcome back to Studio Tulsa after four or five years. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Rich. You're going to be speaking on what you call the foreign policy clock being turned back to an earlier age, competition between the great powers again. What has precipitated this in your view? Well, what has precipitated this, Rich, is that power has dispersed in the world arena. There was a lot of hope if you were to go back 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall collapse of the Soviet Union, that perhaps we had entered into a new era of global politics in which we could put geopolitical rivalry behind us. The United States invested in a policy known as strategic engagement. It was the idea that the United States should encourage the rise of China. The hope was, to borrow a phrase made popular by members of the George W. Bush administration, persuade China to be a responsible stakeholder to integrate Russia into the West, into the European order. And those policies uh, ultimately have failed. We can debate the reasons for them and how you want to apportion the blame. But I think it's fair to say, I think as anyone notices just reading the news headlines, we're an era of uh, great power rivalry once again, major players being the United States, China, and Russia, but also other significant powers like India, Brazil, and South Africa. Responsible stakeholders, you use that term. Was it sort of the misguided notion was we were expecting them to be a responsible stakeholder from our point of view as opposed from Chinese self-interest? Well, that's one of the big debates, Rich, as to whether or not the expectations of strategic engagement were realistic or illusory. And I think one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, what was the alternative? Would trying to keep China down or to hold Russia down have produced anything other than what we have right now? I think if there is a criticism to be made of the policy of strategic engagement, which was a bipartisan policy, you could see elements of it in the first George H.W. Bush administration, then the Clinton administration, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, was that we held on to it too long. When we were seeing warning signs, particularly in terms of Chinese behavior, we didn't begin to rethink 
whether we should be changing what we should do. And it's really accelerated over the last several years. And when you see these warning signs, I think most Americans would think of economic warning signs. But for a long time, we put on the back burner the the military, the you know geostrategic concerns. I think you're exactly right, Rich. I think when you get to the late aughts, uh, there were increasing signs that the Chinese were stealing everything uh, that, that wasn't sort of locked down, entering into cyber networks. But there were also growing signs of Chinese militarization, particularly in the South China Sea. Uh, Chinese foreign policy became much more assertive, even belligerent, uh, particularly toward its neighbors. Some people may recall back in 2010 when uh, the Chinese cut off the export of uh, certain strategic minerals to Japan, and they've repeated that behavior. A lot of that reflects the rise of Xi Jinping, who in essence has made a vow to the Chinese people that he is going to end the century of national humiliation by making sure that China asserts its rightful place on the world stage. He has repeatedly said that the East is rising and the West is declining. And the Chinese narrative in particular got a big boost from the Great Recession of 2008-2009. And I think also the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. The Chinese believe that their time had come. At the same time, you have growing alienation between Russia and the West, particularly the United States. We're seeing that play out now Uh, grievously in the case of Ukraine. But as early as 2007, Vladimir Putin was essentially suggesting that hopes of Russia being integrated into the West were dead. No, that's absolutely true. And I'm wondering, in hindsight, the expansion of NATO, in one sense, it seems like it was a Prussian idea. On the other hand, did it maybe push Russia into the stance it's taking now? I think we have to be very careful here, Rich, when we talk about what has happened with the invasion of Ukraine. If we're talking about blame, the blame rests squarely on on the shoulders of Vladimir Putin. No one forced him to invade Ukraine. He chose to invade it. He invaded it because he thought he could win and win quickly. And what's remarkable is how much has changed uh, over the course of a year. A year ago at this time, Russia was seen as having the second best military in the entire world. (laughs) Today, or even just a couple of days after the invasion began, it appeared to have only the second best military in Ukraine. <laughs> Having said that, I think if you look back on it, there are obviously junctures along the road, and hindsight is 2020, where I imagine a lot of American policymakers would like to have a do-over. Could there have been different policy choices made? For example, perhaps not leaving the ABM treaty, or perhaps not in uh, 2008 talking about NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. I think you can have very good debates about that. But again, at the end of the day, the Russians bear the burden for the invasion of Ukraine, not NATO expansion. And I will just point out that from a purely military point of view, NATO a year ago presented much less of a threat to Russia than it had 30 years earlier. Indeed, one of the big complaints was that NATO itself had become obsolete. The United States removed much of its military firepower from Europe, and European countries had clearly underinvested in their militaries, perhaps most notably Germany, uh, which famously during some military exercises had its soldiers training with broomsticks because they didn't have the actual equipment to train on. And I don't think we should lose sight of that fact. When we come to the war in Ukraine, I mean, at this point, uh, we're seeing Russia uh, 
not withdrawal from the SALT treaties, but uh, suspending them. And the same day they do an ICBM test and it fails. This has obviously shown the world a new side of this military machine that most people thought was a machine, and it's not a machine anymore. It's well, a, you're right, it's rusted Richard. equipment. Uh, but there's been a lot of saber rattling by Vladimir Putin, and it's deeply concerning because of the devastation uh, that nuclear weapons would unleash. We don't yet know exactly what Putin means when he says he's going to suspend participation in the New START treaty. Shortly after his speech, the Kremlin let made it be known that they weren't talking about adding more missiles or taking them out of storage and putting them on uh, back into launchers or putting more warheads on new missiles. So it's not really clear what it means. And for several months now, maybe even longer, the Russians have not followed the verification protocols of the treaty, allowing the United States to do no challenge inspections. So it's not clear exactly what Mr. Putin's speech means at the end of the day. Other than that, he's clearly trying to unnerve Western governments, Western publics, and people beyond that uh, we may see a real turn in the course of the war. And always with that implicit threat, we could see nuclear use, which obviously uh, no one wants to see happen. Well, what is the the long-term implication of this global power struggle, United States, China, Russia playing a variant of the great game yeah. from the 19th century. A lot of people think it inevitably led to World War I at some point or another. Do you see that as a, a possible, the direct conflict between the United States and these nations are probable or possible or what exactly? Well, I want to be clear. I don't think conflict among the great powers is inevitable, but I do think in this new age that the risk of conflict are higher than they used to be. And it's not simply because there's a potential that a country, be it China, be it Russia, intentionally decides to start a war. It's that you can get to war, you can get to conflicts that no one planned. World War I, I think, yeah. in many ways is the great example where all the sides felt that they were at a disadvantage and they had to show resolve and determination lest they lose, and they ended up stumbling into a war that destroyed a continent and actually ended a number of those monarchies. And I would just say right now, when you're in a situation in which countries are now very conscious of the motives and actions of others, even small incidents have the potential to spiral because governments are always going to be looking at any confrontation as an opportunity to show their will, to show their mettle, to view the conflict as a test of their determination. And just to do a thought experiment, you know, what would happen today if we had something like what happened in 1999 when the United States by accident bombed a Chinese embassy? Could you just sort of solve it and keep a lid on it or would you see great escalation? And there are obvious flashpoints here, Rich. The one that probably tops the list is Taiwan. Yeah. My guest today is uh, James Lindsay. He's the senior vice president, director of studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He oversees the work of over six dozen fellows and 11 fellowship programs there at the council. And he's our guest today on Studio Tulsa. He was a guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations. Well, in your five foreign policy stories for 2023, uh, it's very interesting, your, your list, because obviously the first one is a no-brainer, the war in Ukraine. 
The second is the axis of the aggrieved. And I think we're seeing one, one episode playing out this week as we speak as top Chinese diplomatic leaders meeting with the Kremlin. There's some talk of, is China considering providing Russia with weapons or, or upping their relationship? And that seems to tie, at least from my viewpoint, into your third, which is the tensions over Taiwan. I would imagine China is looking very closely to the West reaction to Ukraine and thinking, what does this mean for Taiwan? Oh, very much so. I think the Chinese have made it very clear that they're following what happened in Ukraine very closely. And again, getting back to the issue of the axis of the aggrieved, it's not simply that China and Russia are coming together and collaborating. You know, on the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, President Xi and President Putin famously announced their strategic friendship with no limits. It is that other countries are joining as well. Iran has clearly come to the aid of the Russians providing uh, drone technology and other things. The North Koreans have also been very active in providing ammunition to the Russians. And I think it's very obvious that Beijing and Moscow have been consistently, and this predates the invasion of Ukraine, making the argument that the United States is a country that is dominated and taken from others and hasn't given. The Chinese have a phrase, the abuse of hegemony. And they have been making the case of the so-called global south to poorer countries that the United States makes a lot of demands on you but provides you with very little. In essence, it is time for new management. And one of the concerning uh, developments since the Russian invasion of Ukraine is we talk about how the world has come together in opposition to the invasion, and that's not true. The West has come together in opposition to the invasion, but much of the world is sitting on the sidelines or has been hostile to the West or blamed the United States or Western powers for having provoked the war. And I think that contains an important lesson for Americans and for American policymakers that we're in a new environment in which we're competing for the attention, for the support, for the help of other countries. We can't just presume that because we think we are right or on the right side of history that other countries are going to rally to us. And the Chinese have been particularly good at building up good ties with countries around the world, in part because they have been walking around with this uh, so-called Belt and Road Initiative, investing very heavily in infrastructure projects throughout the world in countries that deeply need infrastructure and haven't asked a lot of questions. Whereas the United States and the West, if we do show up with money... We ask we humanitarian questions. We, we ask come human with a rights. long list yeah. of conditions. And uh, that gets noticed. So my, my follow-up question is, how receptive is the global South to that message of American hegemony and that China can provide a adequate counterweight without cost to those particular nations? Well, it's unfortunately a message that has more appeal than I think most Americans would want it to have, and certainly people in Washington would want it to have. Uh, there have been a number of governments who, as I mentioned, have sat on the sidelines, refused to abide by the sanctions that have been imposed. Uh, the country that gets the most notice on this score would be India, which has continued to buy oil from Russia. Uh, the Indian government, to his credit, has signaled that it doesn't support uh, what the Russians have done. On the other hand, India is a poor country, and if they can buy oil, which they need uh, for their economy at a steep discount, they're going to do so. 
but obviously that has consequences. And I think one of the results of having an era of geopolitical rivalry is that you are competing for all of these other countries. The United States has a long history of knowing how to deal with this. The United States saw that in the first three or four decades after the end of World War II. In that case, it was a contest with the Soviet Union. It doesn't mean we always got our, our diagnosis and prescription right, but in essence, we were concerned with what is it that we should do to make sure we can keep countries favoring our views. And I think the great advantage the United States takes into an era of geopolitical rivalry is that it has lots of friends, partners, and allies, many more than the Russians do, many more than the Chinese do. The question is, can we keep those alliances? Can we renew them? Can we extend and build on them? And that's going to be a test of statesmanship in Washington. Let me ask you a quick question about the amount of investment China is doing in many of these nations. Sometimes it's some of the places we're not willing to go because of humanitarian and, and human rights questions and democratic questions. China seems to have no qualms. But what about countries that we would consider, if not ideals, at least making good progress towards sort of our requirements? Is that Chinese message making inroads and the money making inroads on those sorts of countries as well? The answer is yes and no. And here's the really interesting thing, Rich. When the Chinese originally rolled out their Belt and Road Initiative, they spent amazing amounts of money. They essentially went to countries all around the world, in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa, lent a lot of money, gave a lot of money, and in many cases gave money for projects that had no economic viability. And the countries receiving the money had no real capacity to pay it back. And you've seen in several countries, Sri Lanka is the one that comes most readily to mind. I think there's been great buyer's remorse. So the Chinese effort has not been one success after another. There's been a big backlash in part because when the Chinese go in and they invest, they insist that Chinese companies be used. They don't develop a local workforce. They run roughshod over local rules, and that leads to a backlash. But I think what we've been seeing over the last year or so is the Chinese actually learning from their mistakes. You can't always count on your adversary to make your job easy. And, you know, the Chinese have, to a large extent, with their wolf warrior diplomacy, this very belligerent approach to diplomacy, criticizing hosts, created real problems for themselves, created a backlash. Also, things like suppressing democracy in Hong Kong has taken uh, and put a lot of people in the region uh, aback because they look at it and see the potential threat to themselves. But the Chinese are capable of learning, adjusting, dialing back their rhetoric, and that way it can be even more dangerous. Let's focus for just a moment longer on uh, that third foreign policy issue, and that's tensions over Taiwan. Obviously, Ukraine has shown a different side of the West than from what the West has experienced. Well, even you really have to say until World War II actually began because there were large elements that were not for war until basically war was declared. And I'm wondering how China views Ukraine as far as Taiwan, because they're very clear in their goal that they want Taiwan back in as a part. They consider it part of China and that, that they should occupy And U.S. China. policy does not deny that Taiwan is part of China. And they look at Ukraine as once part of 
the greater Soviet Union for a long time and only a short amount of time as an independent country, does this give them a sense that we better move sooner rather than later on Taiwan? Well, I should be very clear here. Taiwan is not an independent country and it's yes. not recognized as no, such you're right. by the United States. The interesting thing, though, obviously, is that Xi Jinping has made it very clear that he intends to oversee the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China. Uh, the United States policy of strategic ambiguity, which dates back to the 1970s, essentially has said that we're not going to say one way or the other whether we will defend Taiwan, that we will arm Taiwan. I think President Biden, in his various statements in which he said we're going to defend yeah. Taiwan if it's attacked, has in essence, I think, settled the issue in the Chinese minds. But I, my sense is the Chinese have always believed that there was a high probability the United States would be tempted to come to the defense of Taiwan, and their hope was to create a set of circumstances in which the United States would rethink it. I don't think that policy by the Chinese has worked. Now, keep in mind, you can talk about mainland China retaking Taiwan, but that'll be a very heavy lift. We're really talking about an amphibious invasion over 100 miles of sea. It is very hard to do. The Chinese military hasn't fought major armed combat since 1979 when it fought a border war with Vietnam and it lost. So I think most strategists would say Ukraine and the failures of the Russians in Ukraine have given the Chinese uh, reason to pause. But perhaps the best way uh, to think of it is something I heard someone say in a talk recently, which was that the way the Chinese view the issue of Taiwan brought to mind that famous scene in the movie Jaws, where Roy Scheider looks out the back of the boat and uh, turns, he's a shark, turns to his uh, crewmates and says, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the way the Chinese feel. But the reality is the Chinese are capable of building a bigger boat and are going to. And here, Washington, this administration, any successor administration, has to walk a very delicate line. You need to have a policy uh, that is sufficiently tough to deter, but not so tough as to provoke. And that could be a very small eye of a needle to thread. We're into the second year of, of the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. At this point, it's hard to see anything other than a stalemate. I mean, things could change. Russia's sheer number of men and sheer will could overpower Ukraine eventually. It could go the other way because Ukraine seems to be far more nimbler and better in the defensive than certainly Russia in the offensive. What, what's your feeling about this conflict as it goes on into its second year? I think we're in a very dangerous place, Rich, for precisely the reasons you point out. This is likely to be a prolonged war. It's hard to see any dynamics that can, in the near term, lead to any kind of peace. The Russians do not appear to have the ability to be able to break through and take Ukraine. Uh, and as long as the West continues to supply Ukraine with weapons, that's likely to be the case. By the same token, it's not obvious that the Ukrainians can roll the Russians back out of Ukraine. There was a lot of excitement last fall when the Ukrainians had a very successful counteroffensive in the northeast part of the country, took back a fair amount of territory. 
but since then, the battle lines have basically stalled. And right now, you're looking at a war of attrition that could go on for a very long time at very great cost. And the question is, can you somehow negotiate? And it's hard to see how you can get a negotiated solution. In the current circumstance, President Putin's approach seems to be, I can take more pain longer than Ukraine and the West can. If I just stay here, I may suffer grievous losses. But at the end of the day, Ukraine is going to become mine. It's going to become Russia's because the West is going to tire. It's going to run out of oxygen. It's going to want to go off and do other things. And they'll point to the United States leaving Afghanistan. So from Putin's point of view, time is on his side. Any peace overture can be then interpreted as, oh, there's definite evidence that the West wants to get out. At the same time, the Ukrainians who were suffering horrifically from this see no advantage to them in trying to negotiate a peace because, one, they want to take back what's been taken from them, very understandable. But they also have a very real fear that if they were to negotiate something with Russia, it wouldn't last longer than a snowball in July. What will happen is that the Russians will use any agreement as a pause to refresh, to rebuild, and Ukraine will be back in the position it is right now. Can Russia suffer those grievous losses in the long term? Uh, Russian history would suggest yes. President Putin, when he gives speeches, likes to talk about World War II. And World War II for then Soviet Union was a horrific experience. Soviet Russian people suffered horribly. The siege of Lenin killed more than a million people. And of course, the propaganda in Russia is that they are the victims. Very much so. Just as they were in 1941. Exactly. And what President Putin has said in his most recent speech on the year anniversary of the invasion is that this is a war that the West has imposed upon Russia and that Russia is standing up for its own nationhood and that what the United States and the West want to do is to wipe Russia off the map. And that is a rallying cry because Russians, like people of most countries, love their country, can be brought to nationalistic fervor. And it's also a country in which the public doesn't get to go to the polls <laughs> and vote for somebody different. So uh, President Putin controls all the major media channels within Russia. So Russians are getting a steady diet of one view of the war and its causes. Of course, it couldn't outlast the Afghans and the Afghan incursion. And we're talking about losses of a far greater scale. That is true. But again, slight difference. It was hard for any Russian leader or Soviet leader back then to argue that Afghanistan was a constituent part of the Russian nation. The argument here is that Russia was born in Kiev. It's an outgrowth of the Kievian Rus. This is a thousand years that in some ways Ukraine is a fiction. And it's been stolen. And it's from, been stolen from yeah, us and it's yeah. time to reconstitute the true mother Russia. We see right now sort of a slow annexation of Belarus, which could be happening. Uh, the effort to take over Ukraine, of course, for many Europeans, particularly those living in Central and uh, Eastern Europe, having historical memory, they're horrified about what's going to happen. So you talk to people in the Baltic countries or in Poland, there's a great deal of concern that you will not see a President Putin be satisfied if he gets Ukraine, that he's going to continue because he has a very expansionist, imperialist vision of what Russia is entitled to. Well, James Lindsay, I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much for joining us. Rich, thanks for having me.
The senior vice president of the Council on Foreign Relations, James Lindsay, speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. He was the guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations earlier this week. You can read his writings regularly on his blog, The Water's Edge, which discusses the politics of American foreign policy. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.